you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the big-name strategist who just raised his target for stocks this year and next. We'll debate that call with our investment committee today. And joining me for the hour, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, Steve Weiss, Jenny Harrington, the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Let's go to the wall. Let's check stocks. Broadly higher, as you just heard. There you go. The Nasdaq getting a bounce back today, up better than 2%, up on 221 points. Dow's up 232. So you have a nice broad-based rally today. And now let's bring in the president of Yardeni Research, Ed Yardeni. He just raised his 2020 S&P target to 3,500. Ed, welcome back. Thank you very much. You've been bullish for a while, and now you're acting on it. Why was now the time? Well, I, I had some concerns uh, that the market would have some concerns about uh, the uh, pandemic, that uh, we did obviously see some uh, uh, increase in the uh, outbreaks uh, down in the, in the Sun Belt. Uh, but the market uh, is just accentuating the positives, and uh, the most positive development that we've had is since uh, March 20th, uh, the 10-year bond yield has been below 1%. And uh, Tina, you know, there is no alternative, has probably never been more relevant than it has been uh, since, since uh, the Fed adopted what I call QE forever on March 23rd. You have what you call a melt-up in the market, but you also say that as you have more of this melt-up, you increase the risk of a meltdown. So how does that factor into your broader view? Well, it's just, uh, the, you know, it's, it's one thing to uh, be bullish, but at the same time, you have to be aware of uh, where the downside risks are. And uh, to the extent that the market has a melt-up, uh, it puts more air between uh, stock prices and, uh, and earnings. In other words, the valuation multiple has been on fire here. We've, we've really had a PE-led melt-up uh, in the stock market from 12.9 on a forward PE basis on March 23rd, and now we're over 22 and it uh, looks like we're going to go higher, led by the uh, big tech growth companies, uh, as you can see today, for example. Well, it's been a nice move back today from those companies. Yes. But what do you make of the debate between growth and value and that you're going to need or maybe people think certainly there are those who are making projections that value is going to take you to that next level in the market? Growth has gotten you here. But as yeah. your scenario suggests that if things are snapping back from the virus, that growth stocks are, are going to fall back and it's values that, that are going to take the lead? I don't know if it's fall back. Uh, I, I mean, I think uh, we could have growth and value go up, but uh, perhaps on a uh, percentage change basis, we could have value, as you said, lead uh, for a while. I mean, there's a lot of uh, value uh, names in energy and there's a lot of value names in financials. I don't know about energy. I don't know that there's much more upside in the price of oil. Uh, but the financials probably uh, do have some some upside here, uh, especially uh, if the perception is that uh, we are going to get a vaccine sooner rather than later and uh, that some of the social distancing restrictions will become a thing 
um, of the of the of the past uh, maybe six to 12 months from now. Hmm. Month to date, industrials up eight and a half percent, energy six, financials five and a half. I mean, those those are definitely the leadership groups. Do you think the the value trade, though, is legit? Do you think or, or is it just yet another head fake, Ed, as we've gotten so well, often? Well, look, um, I, I don't think we're going to uh, see a, a recession coming out of all this. Clearly, uh, we had uh, we had a terrible recession in uh, March and April, but there's no precedent for a, a two-month recession. But that looks like what it really was. And now we may, we're maybe seeing some areas where the economy is stalling, but I don't think we're going to go back uh, into a downturn. And, and I think clearly uh, we are making progress on the health front. And if, uh, if that continues, and uh, by the middle of next year, uh, this uh, virus pandemic isn't a real issue for the economy, we have probably a lot of catching up to do uh, uh, in terms of pent-up demand, in terms of people getting over cabin fever, maybe people going back to the office in some cases. Um, so uh, a lot a lot of good things could happen coming out of this. I mean, history shows that bad times are followed by, uh, by good times, and uh, it is the 2020s, uh, so it could be a roaring 20s again, like the 1920s. Uh, I'm open to that possibility. I think technology is there uh, to create all sorts of opportunities uh, in the decade ahead. Uh, compared to uh, the last uh, roaring 20s. Yeah, we're only six points away from a new closing high on the S&P. It's worth noting that as we continue to watch for that new milestone. Let's open it up. Jim Labenthal, Ed Yardeni is is there. Uh, is he right? Hey, Steve Weiss. Yeah, well, in, you, you know, listen, I read Ed religiously every morning. And Ed, I love your stuff and you know that. We have an ongoing dialogue. One of the things you've talked about is that uh, multiples should expand in a low interest rate environment. Uh, given that the 10-year is up 13 basis points in the last few days, should we be worried? I mean, let's put this into perspective. Your year-end target is 21 times uh, forward earnings for 2021. In normal circumstances, we'd be worried about that. Uh, not in a low interest rate environment, but what if interest rates keep going up? That is a very good question, a very important question. And um, yesterday we had the bond yield uh, jump and uh, the stock market sold off partly on that uh, uh, development. Uh, but I think what the markets figured out is the old adage, don't fight the Fed. In other words, the Fed has made it very clear that they're not thinking about interest rates. They're not even thinking about thinking about it, uh, raising interest rates. That's what uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell has said. And that means that if the bond yield starts uh, moving closer to 1%, uh, we should anticipate that the Fed might actually implement yield curve control. They've talked about that. Yield curve control is just a fancy uh, schmancy way of saying they're going to uh, target the bond yield below 1%. So I, I think the Fed has made a very, a very clear commitment to keeping interest rates near zero. And that raises the, uh, the age-old question, not really the age-old question. Well, the age-old question was to be or not to be. I recently wrote a piece uh, comparing Hamlet's uh, question to my question, which is, you know, what should the valuation multiple be in a world where interest rates are zero? I don't really have a model that uh, that answers that, but I don't think it's 15. It may not even be 20. It may be higher than 20, if as rate, it is now. If rates continue to go up, though, Ed, I mean, that that's also allowing a, a, more people to make the case for cyclical stocks, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, yesterday we had the financials doing quite well, uh, partly because the, the bond yields went up. Uh, but um, I think the financials can do fine as long as the perception is that uh, we're getting out of this morass, that uh, there's going to be a recovery, and that uh, 
while there will be a lot of restructuring uh, resulting in the credit markets with defaults and bankruptcies, that the banks can handle it and can absorb it uh, and, um, and can actually profit coming out of it. Steve Weiss, what do you think? Hey, Ed, I've got a question for you. I read your note. I enjoyed it. But at one point you say that all the good news is discounted or largely discounted in, for this year and next year. With that being the case, why would you raise your price targets if all the good news is in there already? Well, 3,500 by, by year end um, is, uh, is is not much of a of a, of, a, of an upside from here. 3,800 by the end of 10%. next year is, is about a 12 percent increase. Uh, I, I think there's more good right. news that can can move. But, but look, you know as well as I do, we have discounted an amazing amount of of news and uh, accentuated clearly the positives and. And the market so far is, I think, rightly uh, recognized that the negatives can be solved. The other thing, you know, don't, Jenny... Don't you think... Go ahead, Sorry, Mike. sorry, Scott, go ahead. I, I was, don't you think that all that matters right now, what everybody's looking to, is the timeline for consensus, the consensus timeline for approval of the vaccine towards the end of the year. And that's really what... Rates can do whatever they want to do. Earnings can do whatever they want to do. That's the single point that everybody's focused, and everybody wants to get long in front of that and spread out the sectors that they're long. Isn't it as simple as that for the bull case? Well, I, I think there's something to be said for that. Look, this, this has been a world war against the, a virus, and like all wars, there are many fronts. Uh, this one's had a health front, it's had an economic front, and a financial front. We've clearly made a lot of progress on the financial front ever since the Fed came in, carpet bombing the economy with liquidity starting March 23rd. Uh, we've made a lot of progress on the economic front, though, you know, we may be slowing down the, the pace of recovery, but I think the recovery is still intact. Uh, and where we do seem to be making some progress is on the healthcare front. Uh, you know, we've spent trillions here, trillions there, which has been very positive for the financial markets and has given a boost to the economy. And we've spent billions on vaccines, and um, there's a good chance something's going to work come about that, that works and might actually lead to new technological innovations to deal with a whole host of other diseases. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic there. All right. Jenny, your take on Ed, your Jenny's target here. I think Ed brings up a really important point when he says that you don't necessarily need to have the large cap, mega cap growth companies. They don't necessarily need to decline for the overall market to do well. He says it's the percent of change that's meaningful. And I think that that's really critical. One of the words that's been bothering me that we keep using is rotation. And the reason that rotation, I've been trying to think about why it bothers me, because rotation implies that you're either, that it's either yeah, on or off, in or out. How about just a broadening? And I think that's what Ed's getting at, is that we might have a broadening of strength, which would be good for the market, good for investors, good for, you know, good for everything. And we might not see crazy multiple expansion coming out of that. We might see rational multiple expansion. So I like to look at the percent change of value that could be greater than the percent change of the mega cap in the next several months. Let's just continue to call our attention as well to what's uh, the right-hand side of your screen there. S&P 500 now within five points of a new closing high. So we're at the highs of the day as we are in the midst of a broad-based rally on Wall Street today. Better than 230 points for both the Dow and the Nasdaq, though the Nasdaq, as you can see, is up by more than 2%. You know, Joe, the other interesting way to look at, look at the market and have a conversation about money coming out of tech and into cyclical or into value epicenter, whatever you call it, 
it doesn't have to be money coming out of the mega cap techs to tell that story. Take a look at, at under the surface, if you will, of some of those highest of high flyer stocks, the high valuation stocks. Go down the list. Money is coming out of, of tech. Fastly's down 30% in a week. DocuSign's down 13. Zoom 13. Twilio 11.5. Okta, which Jim Cramer suggests is one of the keys to the market, is down 10. The point is, money is coming out of tech. It doesn't have to come out of the biggest of tech to tell the story. Yeah, I would agree with that to a certain extent. I think that money will come back in again in the names like DocuSign. I'm long DocuSign. I'm staying with it. But money is coming out of other places that I think are far more relevant, and there's far more money that has actually been hiding out in those places. And those places are investment-grade bonds. Those places are municipal bonds. And clearly, if you look at the performance over the last five days or so, um, I asked the team at CNBC to pull up some charts. You'll see that there's a significant decline in the LQD. There's a significant decline in the MUB. And the reasoning behind it, Scott, is simple. You're seeing better economic numbers, both domestically and globally, as it relates to manufacturing. Take a look at the IYT, which is the transportation ETF. Over the last 10 days, that's up 15%. So that's signaling to Jenny's point that it's not about a rotation. It's not in or out. It's about a broadening. And with that broadening, I've got my 29 positions to the max. Uh, we are as I think Ed is correctly uh, forecasting, we're going to take a run at these highs, and we're going to attempt to break out above 3,400, and we'll see if we're able uh, to participate with new buying towards 3,500 or whether we'll stall. But I think that's what's happening right now. Ed, I mean, look, Kramer made the point today. I mean, you're not really going to have, um, and I'd like your opinion on this, you're not really going to have a, a, the broadest of, of rallies in, in mega cap tech, in what I call mega valuation tech, the ones that we just named, these Fastleys and these other names, which have huge valuations and cyclical stocks, Kramer makes the point there's not enough money to go around, right? Money has to come out of something if you're going to have a prolonged rally in value stocks. And the likelihood that it comes out of the Microsofts and the Apples and the Amazons, the Facebooks, is fairly slim. So it's got to come somewhere, don't you, don't you think? Well, look, I'm, I'm never going to disagree with Jim. Jim knows the market better than anybody else does he? watches it all the time and comes up with some very good opinions. But uh, I would just add that there's lots of money out there that's still sitting in liquid assets. A lot of people kind of jumped out of the market uh, when it sold off uh, in February through uh, March 23rd. And uh, the market rebounded so quickly that a lot of people got kind of caught flat-footed. There's a lot of institutional accounts I know that want to rebalance uh, out of bonds and into stocks, and they were talking about it. Uh, and they continue to talk about it and just waiting for an opportunity. But the market's not giving them that chance because everybody wants to get out of bonds and wants to get into stocks. Maybe that's a crowded trade, but it also could be a trade that leads to a melt up. And uh, I, I think there's enough cash on the sidelines that could uh, uh, do, as Jenny said, provide us uh, with a, uh, a bull market that uh, where some of the uh, laggards catch up. And the laggards are the ones that uh, will benefit from uh, a vaccine and improving economy. Jenny, uh, Tom Lee, to its point, says $5 trillion of cash is on the sideline. Uh, Goldman Sachs' David Costin today upgrades industrials and, and utilities. You really think some of that money is going to come into the market? And if it does come in, it is going to go to those types of stocks? I sure do. So I'm on a few investment committees, and the conversation on those investment committees has been about the fact that there is no return to be had in bonds. And so if you need if you need a kind of safer part of the portfolio, if you're thinking about replacing your bond portfolio, 
Why not look at bond? I'm sorry, why not look at utilities? Why not look at stocks that are more bond equivalent rather than putting it just into the S&P or just overweighting those mega caps again? So I'm quite convinced that Tom Lee is right with his five trillion. That Ed brings up a great point that there's money sitting in bonds ready to go into equities. I think there's a. I don't think money needs to come out of some stocks to get into others. Steve Weiss, what do you think about that? The the, the notion, you know, of money having to come from somewhere if you're going to have this prolonged move higher and take that next leg um, in the market. Can you really have money going into the Microsofts and the Fangs? Can you have money at the same time going into the Octas and the high-flying technology stocks while at the same time having money going into the industrials, the energy stocks, and financials? Doesn't something have to give? Generally, something has to give, but not to a large extent. What I think gives is the following. First of all, the bond trade has been around forever. In other words, rates have been low for a long, long time. I don't think people are all of a sudden going to wake up and say, with the market where it is, got to sell my bonds to go into equity. So I think that trade is not going to be the one that propels it. Some of it will happen. In terms of the tech stocks, I wouldn't really classify the stocks that you mentioned as tech stocks. Sure, they're in the tech area, but those were really the, the stay-at-home plays. Those were fastly was ridiculous. Those were the hyper-momentum plays that people just didn't know what they were buying. In terms of the others, they're pretty solid. Sure, they gave a couple of percent. I don't think you sell Microsoft, though, in answer to your question. I think you made an excellent point. So where does it come from? It comes from some other underperformers. So, for example, I sold Fortinet, and out of the Fortinet, that I sold because it's been an underperformer recently. I bought some other names that were more leveraged to the economy. So I think that's like what, what people do. Uh, you know, once again, uh, I buy stocks. I don't buy sectors. However, I do, do look at where the exposure is going to to happen, where the better returns. No, you said you said you you, you said you sold Fortinet, and you said you bought some other stocks. Mm-hmm. Which ones? Okay, so so over the last week, we talked about Ford and GM that I bought last week. Those have done well. Uh, I bought Johnson Controls. Why would I buy Johnson Controls? They're involved in commercial and residential real estate. The reason is they've done a great job managing their costs quicker than most. And guess what? I think there's going to be a lot of work done to commercial real estate buildings on their ventilation systems. And I also bought General Dynamics. General Dynamics and Raytheon, actually. Raytheon, a much smaller initial position because they're more levered to, to aerospace. But General Dynamics, while they've got an aerospace division, it's about 20%. The rest is defense. So it's cheap. They have good yields. They're about 3%. So I wanted to spread my exposure to what I think is going to be a race to get that COVID, expo- COVID vaccine exposure towards the end of the year. And also, I believe you're seeing a reaction to the polls continuing to favor Biden. And today's move is partially because he picked Kamala Harris instead of somebody that's left. Oh, I think so you're right about that. Yeah, I, think, that Biden, I think I'm glad you yeah. brought that up because I wanted to I wanted to have that conversation before mm-hmm. I let you go, Ed. Um, I think Weiss is right. I think I think had had Biden picked Elizabeth Warren, for example, I think the market may be trading differently today. I think that would bring up a, a, a much more you know, the, the potential for a much more progressive agenda, perhaps, that would be sure. negative for a bunch of sectors within the market, potentially. Is, is Weiss right? I think he's on to something there today. Well, look, I, I think if we have a radical regime change on November 3rd, the market probably would sell off on that initially. 
but uh, that doesn't necessarily imply that uh, policies are going to uh, change radically o- overnight. And the reality is, as long as those policies don't cause a recession, uh, the market will probably continue to move higher, but uh, the stocks that will perform well will be different than the ones if Trump is reelected. Uh, so um, don't get too bearish here approaching the elections. Just think about, uh, you know, if, if there is a, a change in administrations, which stocks might do well? And it could be stocks like in the industrial sector because there might be more spending on infrastructure. Um, some of the farmers might not do so well, but some of the bios might do fine. So um, stay positive, I think. Uh, don't get too negative about the election outcome uh, and just recognize that it, it'll be a question of which sectors outperform relative to others rather than the beginning of a bear market. Yeah. Ed, I appreciate your time. We uh, gave us something good to talk about today. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Ed Yardeni, the president of Yardeni Research. Again, raising his year-end target for this year and next, 3,500 for the S&P in 2020, 3,800 in 2021. We're also on S&P Record Watch. 3,381 is where we're currently trading. And change, of course, 3,386 would be a new closing high above 3,386.15. Back on February the 19th would be a new closing high for the S&P. You got to do a little better than that for the old intraday high, which was also the same day of February the 19th. 3393 is the old intraday high. Jim, what about the stocks that you want to buy right now? What are they? What should people take a look at right now? You know what? You've got to make this decision about what you think is going on with the virus. Right now, the virus seems to be abating, and all I'm talking about is that the daily case count is coming down, and that's promoting the reopening trade, that's promoting the cyclicals, the values. So, you know, Steve was mentioning a bunch bunch of industrials there, some of which I own. He likes Johnson Controls. I bought Dover last week. You know about that. Um, But I think you can look in the industrials, and I think you can look in financials, um, and I'm going to dare to say that you can look at the top of the capital structure in energy. I'm talking about Chevron, I'm talking about ExxonMobil, the things that have the biggest balance sheets to not only survive, but pick up companies on the cheap as they come out in this reopening trade. Yeah. Joe, how about that energy trade? You think there, do you think there's something there? Um, only to a certain top. extent, I think. Say again, Jim? Only at the top. I don't want people out there buying these mid-cap shale exploration and production companies. That's too dangerous. Buy the big boys. Right. Joe? Yeah, um, I I do think there's something there uh, for the energy trade. I agree with Jim on Chevron. I have exposure there. I also own the XLE. On the natural gas side, I've been talking about uh, CNX and EQD quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. So you had a technical breakout. In particular, as it relates to natural gas, you got the supply and demand imbalance that is going to close significantly here as we move towards the end of the year. And I think crude oil, surprisingly, is maintaining itself well above $40. I know Jim Cramer has been pointing that out on a daily basis. I think that's positive overall for the markets. I think a lot of reasoning behind that is the very fast manufacturing return that we're seeing in Asia and the surprising manufacturing recovery that we're seeing in Europe. Jenny, how do you view dividend stocks here, your, your bread and butter, right? We watch rates tick up a little yeah. bit. How does that impact the way you think about that? I think the rates are so incredibly low that it's meaningless in, the, in terms of being a competitor for the dividend stocks. I think the dividend stocks, by and large, are still super cheap, like 13 times earnings and less. So relative to the broader market, they offer a tremendous value. You've got yields of 
four, five, six, seven percent many times. In fact, if we circle back to energy a little bit and look at some of the pipeline companies, you have things like Enterprise Products that has a $40 billion market cap, a huge dividend yield, trading at 10 times earnings, very little exposure to crude oil, but still trades along you know, with sometimes where oil prices trade. There's a lot of opportunity to be had there. And to Jim's point, you want the top, top of the capital structure. You want the biggest and the best. So you can look at an enterprise or a kinder. Um, they, they hit it on both the energy play as well as the dividend play as well as the value play. Weiss, a couple more things before we take a, a quick break. A couple moves that you made. You mentioned the buys of General Dynamics and Raytheon and selling Fortinet. You also sold Disney. Tell me about it. Well, I went into Disney as a trade when you started talking about it, frankly. Thank you again uh, that Dan Loeb went into it. I've got enough exposure at this point for, the, uh, for COVID uh, being tamed by a vaccine. Disney, I think, is still going to be bleeding cash. Everybody loves it. So most of the good news is the stock. And by the way, before COVID, you saw a lot of downgrades and people exiting at this price. So how much more upside is there? I just don't believe there's a lot. It, it depends on how you view the opportunity of their streaming, right? right. That, that's Loeb's big bet. Right. That, that's what he made, made clear yeah. is that he, he calls it their greatest opportunity ever. And I agree, right. but and it's going to be in the in the near term, their greatest opportunity to invest in the business and lose money, which will impact the other part of their business. So undoubtedly, they will be a winner along with Netflix and streaming. But it's not like you're going to see the return their balance sheet. So, look, the stock will go up. Undoubtedly, the stock will go up as the skies part and blue skies emerge. I just have enough exposure elsewhere. And so that's why I have, can't own them all. I hear you. I hear you. Jenny, it sounds like you want to say something. Right. I think what, what Disney exemplifies right now is the difference between long-term investing and trading. Steve's trading it. As you know, we bought it a couple weeks ago, around 116, and we intend to hold it for a very, very long time. And we think we're going to make a lot of money off of it. We also think expectations, along with, with the low um, investment thesis, are the expectations for earnings are probably way too low, and they're going to pick up a lot from streaming when parks reopen, they reinvested in them, and that'll drive earnings well into the future. So when we bought that, our plan was to hold it for, I don't know, two, three, four, five years, whereas Steve doesn't have that kind of time frame. Okay. We got within three points of a new closing high on the S&P 500. We continue to watch that level. We're going to take a quick break. There you go. There's your market picture. We'll come back. We'll do a bullish call on Target next, along with Home Depot and Lowe's. We're going to debate the retail trade straight ahead. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The half is back right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. It is another potentially historic day on Wall Street as the S&P 500 approaches a new record high. We are just about three points or so away from that. 
35.15 is the level we have to get above. 33.82.15 is where we are right now. So we're going to keep our eyes there on what is a broadening rally on Wall Street today and a big day across the board. Rahel Solomon joins us now with the other headlines. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Scott. Yes, here's your CNBC News update for this hour. So golf fans will not be able to watch this year's Masters in person. The tournament will be held without spectators lining the course because of the pandemic. So dates for the postponed tournament remain November 9th through the 15th. And you can head to our website, CNBC.com, for more on this story. In Northern Virginia, a huge sinkhole has opened up following days of storms and heavy rain. It measures about 100 feet by 50 feet, and apparently it's big enough to take out a road and trap hundreds of people in their neighborhood. At this point, no injuries have been reported, but a flash flood warning does remain in effect. And heavy storm damage in Nebraska is apparently helping some elephants there. The Omaha Zoo has asked local residents to donate downed tree branches because apparently they make really good food for the huge pachyderms. Staff say that donations have been coming in by the truckload and the animals are enjoying their meals. A little silver lining there. I'll send it back to you, Scott. All right, Rahel, we'll see you in just a bit. That's Rahel Solomon. Shares of Target, meantime, hitting all-time highs today. Let's kick it around. J.P. Morgan adds it to its focus list as a growth idea. The bull case, they say, is mounting. Weiss, you own Target. They raise their earnings estimates as well. So Target had a couple of rough quarters if you don't like the stock. If you were bullish on the stock as I was, you embraced them because they're picking up share. They were early on digital, so they're beating their competitors, even Walmart and digital. Now that they've got the early COVID cost more under control, I think you'll see the earnings get back on track because that's what took away from the earnings, all they had to do. Plus, you've got a scarcity effect in retail. A lot of them are going out of business, unfortunately, filing bankruptcy. So you've got to look at fewer stocks. So there's so many benefits from Target, but the share they're picking up, both online and in the stores, is going to stick with them and grow. So I think the stock goes up from here. It's one of the best. I think it'll be the best performing retail stock of this nature going forward. Interesting. Jenny, let's talk another retailer. It's Home Depot. Upgraded today to accumulate from hold. Uh, the target was increased to 306 from 232. That's at Gordon Haskett. That's the name of the firm. Depot, all-time high. Lowe's, target increased, all-time high. Jenny, I ask you that because you own Home Depot. We sure do. We've owned it for a long time. It's one of our favorite and largest holdings in our growth portfolio. One of the things we've done recently, which I think is a cool exercise, is to go through and categorize stocks by what they're going to look like after the pandemic. So they're forever worse or they're forever better or they're forever long-term unaffected. And Target's, sorry, Home Depot is one of the few companies in our portfolio that's forever unaffected by the pandemic. They did great during it. They're going to do great after it. I can see us holding this for 10 years. We'll use it as a source of cash when it grows really big and just trim a little bit. But it's a really long-term holding and a phenomenal company with no slowdown to growth ahead expected. All right, mentioned those calls. Rahel's back with us with a few other big calls on the street. Rahel? So it's quite a big mixed bag today, too. So let's start with Deer. It is currently negative, but it's had a good run, even notching a new high yesterday. Speaking of new highs. So that run up in valuation is part of the reason that Deutsche Bank is now downgrading Deer to hold, but maintaining their $185 price target. They do expect really strong results when Deer reports next Friday. But, Scott, they see little upside for fiscal 2021. Uh, the firm also initiating coverage of Roku with a buy price target here, also 185. Analysts believe that with 50 percent of the connected TV market, 
Roku stands to benefit from increased U.S. ad spend, which it expects to double by 2023. And then finally, Marathon Petroleum getting an upgrade to outperform from Cowit. Price target here is $43. So analysts think that that Speedway sale is the first step in a value creation process. They see upside potential from their restructuring and cost-cutting efforts. That said, Scott, like most energy names, the stock has been under pressure this year, down almost 40 percent. Yeah. Rahel, thank you for that. Rahel Solomon back with us there. Let's start with Deer. Joe, you own it. I do. Uh, mentioned it early last week as potentially having a technical breakout. I got in the stock, and there you go. You got the technical breakout. I don't understand why analysts, when you get those technical breakouts, they downgrade the stock, but whatever. That, that's for them to decide. Uh, what I'm deciding is to stay in the stock. What's important for all of you, are not only is that earnings will be strong, but there is a lot of tailwinds that emanate right now as it relates to machinery and the exportation of machinery. As it relates to deer, cotton machinery and the exports to Asia right now are at levels that we have not witnessed in the last seven years. So that strength is going to translate not just into this quarter, but into future quarters. And it's the reason why I'm holding deer. And I think it goes north of 200 easily. All right, Jimmy, let's talk Roku. We did last week. You said you wouldn't touch it. OK, you got another upgrade today, as Rahel yeah. said, to buy at Deutsche 185. Um, why have you fallen so out of favor with a stock you used to love? Well, it's because here it's a very simple reason. One, I can't value it, so it can't be an investment for me. Put that aside. I have traded it successfully in the past. Pick up a one-month chart of Roku, okay? It's all over the place, and it ends up going nowhere. And you look at that chart, and you try to answer the question, what's the next 10% move? What direction is that next 10% move? You cannot answer that question from the chart. Consequently, trading it is a roll of the dice. And that's, that's not how anybody should trade. You need to see momentum in this name in order to trade it. It's just not there. You're not a gambler, Jimmy? <laughs> not, I, like a, I like gambling when the <laughs> odds are in my favor. So do you, Scotty. Yeah, I that's do, but I mean, judge. With it, okay, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, I always like your take on Roku because it was such a winner for you for such a long time. And we still get questions from viewers about your thoughts about it. I know. Wondering if you're going to get back into it. You, you know, here's the thing, and I, I can't see the screen right now, but if you pull up like a three-year chart, you see these wild moves up and down. And when I say wild, I'm talking about tripling in a year. Remember it in 2019, it tripled in a year. That's momentum that you can get behind and you can trade. It's lost that momentum, and it's really lost it since February when it reported a great quarter, traded down, and now it's just been all over the place. Quickly on another one of your stocks, Marathon Petroleum. You heard Rahel talk about that one, too. Upgraded at Cowan. Target 43. Yeah, I'll make this really simple. When that deal closes to sell Speedway in the first quarter, they're likely to buy back one-third of their shares. Um, I don't think that's priced into the stock at all. They're just going to have a ton of cash, and they're going to recapitalize the stock. It should be great. All right. We will take a quick break, and when we come back, the New York Times reporter Kate Kelly is back with us. She dives into how the pandemic is testing Goldman Sachs' CEO David Solomon's leadership style and more. We'll get the take on from Joe and Jim because they both own Goldman shares. And we're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. Picture this. 
You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Welcome back. The coronavirus pandemic has forced CEOs from all kinds of companies to rethink how they approach their jobs and the new challenges that come with it. The New York Times' Kate Kelly is out today with a new piece taking a look at Goldman's David Solomon. She joins us now. Kate, welcome back. Thanks so much, Scott. Always good to be with you. Interesting read. You write about what you call the different vibe that Solomon has brought to the job, and it's really been on display during the pandemic, both in the way that he's dealt with employees and Goldman's clients. Yeah, I think that's right. And for background, you know, David grew up in some of the most rough-and-tumble cultures of Wall Street, Bear Stearns, Drexel Burnham Lambert. He's 58 years old, so it's kind of interesting that he, at that age and with that background, is sort of uh, being cast as the more modern-minded, sort of um, open-minded, vulnerable is his word, CEO, for this type of crisis period. Um, you know, one of the first things he did at Goldman um, after ascending to the to CEO role was to rip up the dress code, you know, and he occasionally wears, like, jeans to the office, even pre-pandemic, and wears golf shirts and other things during the pandemic. That's just obviously a, a superficial thing. But more substantively, when the crisis hit, he was one of the earlier CEOs on the street to send people home, few or no questions asked, outfit them with landlines and, and terminals and things. And people, as you know, were literally trading from a bathroom at their parents' house, potentially, or at a childhood desk um, at some other family home. So they were all over the place, but they managed to make it happen, obviously, when you look particularly at trading, but also uh, on the investment banking side at financing in the first and second quarters. It's interesting. You say in that sort of light that he came to the conclusion that the virus was going to be maybe worse than he had thought after a conversation with someone we know, and that is David Tepper. Yeah, that's right. I was actually just watching Jim Cramer's interview with Tepper uh, the day after the Super Bowl where he talked about some of this. But, yeah, I mean, Tepper, Solomon, and Jim and many others, of course, were at the Super Bowl that first weekend of February. And uh, Tepper, I guess, had just read a piece in The Lancet, the British medical journal, that was quite bearish for COVID and uh, I'm sure had been doing his own analysis. And he kind of moderated or even reversed what he had said just a couple weeks prior, I think, to you about a a generally constructive bullish outlook. And he said, I'm getting quite worried. I really think um, this could have a damaging effect on the U.S. markets and economy. So for Solomon, who recalls being cautious himself at the time, that was something of a turning point, that conversation with David. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the piece how he is sort of not your conventional CEO, right? Certainly not your conventional Wall Street CEO. Um, he has interests outside of what maybe some consider to be, you know, the norm, the, the DJing, et cetera. And there have been some missteps as well that, that he's owned up to, uh, as, as you write. Yeah, I mean, this to me, Scott, was one of the interesting things in the story. So it's well known that he has this electronic music DJing hobby, and not only does he mix music at live performances, but he's recorded some of his own tracks, and I think they've done okay. Um, He recently performed at this Hamptons concert called Safe and Sound, and although, you know, he was on stage and not encouraging encouraging or participating in this, there were people partying in close quarters, you know, not necessarily observing safety protocols, and the governor uh, got frustrated and and launched an inquiry into what had happened with the permitting and, and the event. In the light of that, 
Solomon has uh, said he made a mistake and canceled his live events for the foreseeable future. Although they, well, he doesn't plan to give up the hobby. And apparently the board has looked at this in the past, and there was a discussion about it last summer when he had committed to a European festival called Tomorrowland, um, saying, is this the right thing in terms of optics? And inside conversations, some directors have even said, maybe golf would be a better hobby. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I mean, it, it underscores the fact that he, he obviously connects well with younger people. He's, he's made an effort, I think you, it's fair to say, to better connect with Goldman's younger employees. And the fact of the matter is, half of them at least are under the age of 30. Yeah, I thought that was astonishing. 45% of their workforce is under 30, and I think it's more like two-thirds or 70% is under 40. But, you know, the other thing, Scott, that we should note here is there's a lot of wood to chop, as we all know. I mean, we're entering a very uncertain phase. You know, uh, Goldman has a number of new associates coming to the office this fall, as many other firms do. It remains to be seen how they're going to mentor people and develop them if, you know, the majority of people are out of the office. Um, it could be a very difficult time for M&A. Uh, M&A was down like 70% um, in the second quarter, and that's some of their bread and butter business. Um, and, you know, these are just tricky waters. So uh, we need to see what goes on and whether he can continue to navigate this. I think it's worth noting Goldman stock has actually never recovered from the high it reached in early March of 2018, right before he was named heir apparent. Now, they've had a decent bounce off the bottom since the, the March lows this year, but they're still not where they were two-plus years ago. And, and that leads me to what he's really going to be judged by at the end of the day, Kate, right? You can, you can uh, r report on all of the um, other extracurricular activities uh, that he's involved in, and the, everybody likes talking about the DJing because it's just unconventional, what we're used to talking about when it comes to CEOs. Mr. Solomon's going to be judged on Goldman's performance and ultimately the performance of the stock price, like every other CEO is judged on. A hundred percent. And Goldman would always say that its own differentiating factor is talent. So whether he can keep the employee loyalty, keep people in their seats, continue to compete with Silicon Valley and other financial services firms for new folks, but also retain the ones they have. He's also um, held himself to a pretty high standard in terms of diversity and inclusion. So whether they can move forward with that, have a more diverse C-suite, which right now is not extremely diverse, um, that, that's going to be all part of the future uh, obligations and, and the benchmark against which they'll be measured. You write how, I mean, that, that, that issue in and of itself is important to him as it's important as we're hearing from so many different CEOs in the way that he has encouraged his own employees to speak out on issues of race. That's right. And there were some interesting conversations that emanated from that. Um, they have a systematic trader, Fred Baba, who wrote very affectingly um, in an op-ed and, and spoke in a podcast for Goldman, uh, one of their internal podcasts, about his experience being a black professional on Wall Street and some run-ins that he had had with the police, but also had kind of a, a set of ideas for how people within Goldman could help to make things better, including just mentoring people of color, not only hiring them, but supporting them along the way, among other things. And Solomon also convened a sort of emotional, as I understand it, town hall uh, where he invited some black partners to speak about their experiences with the police and their fears for themselves and their family members. Um, and apparently, from what I'm told, it, it was quite affecting as well. And, and you know, Solomon 
seemed very moved by those stories. So we'll see if he can translate that into additional people of color at the firm. Um, this is something that Wall Street historically has not been great at. Yeah. Good read and uh, good to see you as always, or good to talk to you at least. Kate, be well. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. That's Kate Kelly of the New York Times. We do have, Joe, you own Goldman Sachs. Jim, you do as well. But Joe, Joe, you first, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Solomon's going to be judged by what the stock price does. In, in large extent, to a large extent, not solely, obviously, but to a large extent, that's how investors, at least, are going to view his tenure. Sure, I would agree with that. Um, and his tenure began in the fall of 2018. And remember, that was a very tumultuous time, not just for Goldman Sachs, but for the capital markets. The stock was trading right around or slightly above where it's trading here. But I think, Scott, one of the best reasons to own Goldman Sachs is in the wake of the great financial crisis, where before that you thought of them as a hedge fund, you don't know what Goldman Sachs really is right now. Are they a bank or are they not a bank? Um, are they a trading entity or are they not a trading entity? Well, you get the surprise quarter that you just got, where trading revenue was up 40%. Check the box. I like that. And then on the banking side, no, they really don't have significant exposure to the consumer. And that actually lent itself very well in Q1 and Q2. Now, as we move forward, I think Goldman Sachs and David Solomon will do this. He'll take advantage of the consumer banking environment and he'll get more actively involved. In fact, you have the news recently that Goldman Sachs is looking at GM's credit card business. So I think all of those reasons collaboratively, as David Solomon kind of figures out where Goldman Sachs is going to go, those are the reasons I think you want to own this company, and uh, I'll continue to stay with it. Yeah, they do have the Apple Card business, obviously. Should note that as well. Joe, thanks. Yields on the benchmark 10-year note hitting their highest level in over a month. And a record-breaking auction comes later today. We're going to see what happens there. We'll find out what the futures traders are predicting about that and where yields go from here when we come back on the half. All right, let's answer some of your questions now. Joe, I'm coming to you first today. We have a question from Ricky in New York. How do you think Monster Beverage is affected by coronavirus? It's affected with 60% gross margins, 37% operating margins, e-commerce sale up over 200%. I own the name. It's going higher. It's thinking about innovation. They'll introduce a hard seltzer at some point in the next 24 to 36 months. All right, Gambling Jim from Will in Florida. Thoughts on Thermo Fisher? You're going to get me singing before too yeah, long. Look, we, were we, were, we might have to retire, Farmer Jim. I don't know. I like gambling, Jim, now. <laughs> I'll, I'll sing some Kenny Rogers, but not today. Listen, Thermo Fisher, um, making reagents, chemicals, laboratory equipment, everything you need in a pandemic, and after the pandemic, everything you need with aging demographics in the developing world. 25 times next year's earnings is not too much for this company. All right, Weiss to you. Shankar in Illinois, f uh, buying suggestions on 5G. You've talked a lot about 5G, wants to know about Crown Castle or maybe another name that you like better. Well, there are a bunch I own. I own Skyworks, I've mentioned I own Corvo. Let's talk about Crown Castle. I know the company very well. I actually took it public when I was at Lehman Brothers many years ago. They've got a great strategy, which hasn't paid off, but it will now because it's small cells. 5G needs a lot more small cells because the frequency doesn't go as far. So they're going to be a winner in the space, but there are others that will give you more alpha than Crown Castle will. All right, Jenny, lastly to you from Shrey in Florida. I'm 11 years old and I want to start investing. My budget is only a few hundred dollars. Any advice for a kid's dividend growth portfolio? 
Okay, so an 11-year-old who wants dividend stocks, my heart just grew three sizes. <laughs> I would suggest Nextera. <laughs> it's the world's, yeah, Nextera is the world's largest producer of wind and solar. If you live in Florida, Shrey, they might be the reason lights are turned on in your house right now. It's got only a 2% dividend yield right now, but they're growing it at 12% this year and 10% a year after that. Also, if you're 18 and you still love dividend stocks, you can come in for, intern for me, and I will not forget that. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Shrey, we appreciate the question. Well, we're going we're gonna to keep looking after you. Uh, that is Shrey with the question, 11 years old from Florida. It's time now for the futures outlook. Check out the 10-year yield. Said it's hitting its highest level today since early July, ahead of a record government bond auction at the top of the hour. For more on that move, how to trade it ahead of the big event, let's bring in Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. Killer, good to see you again. Are we on to something here? Are we, are we on the run on rates? Potentially, Scott, and this is a big deal, right? We saw seven basis point move in the 10-year note, so we're at a whopping 67 basis points currently. This kind of takes me back to the 1990s when we were trading at 5% when I was actually in the pits in Chicago. We didn't even talk about five or seven basis points, but seven basis points move in this environment, it's a really big deal. So we could potentially on something, and we're going to be looking for the demand component. But at the end of the day, Judge, we are seeing nearly $15 trillion still in negative yields. The German 10-year boon is minus 45 basis points. Think about $15 trillion. That's 25% of all the fixed income out there in the world. So I think we have more room to run. I think we're range bound. I want to see 90 basis points at the height of the 10-year. So I want to be a seller today. I want to be selling at 139.16 in the front month September futures contract, looking for a full point lower in that price, which conversely relates to yields. So yields go up, prices go down in the futures market. So we're looking for a full point, but I'm going to be mindful. It's a two-to-one risk ratio. I'm going to be stopped out of this trade in the event we do see some buyers come back into markets if equities falter going into the close. So this is a trade trying to make $1,000, and I'm risking 500 bucks. Got it. All right. Risk less, make more. Jeff Kilberg, we'll That's see you right. soon. Final trade is straight ahead. Do not miss CNBC's Small Business Playbook. The event will be streaming today. We have industry leaders like Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg is going to join with the resources small businesses need to survive today and thrive for tomorrow. You can visit CNBCEvents.com slash Small Business Playbook to learn more. We're back right after this. All right, let's do final trades. Jenny, you are up first. Sure. Zimmer. If you needed a new hip before the pandemic, you need a new hip after. Revenues might have been deferred, but they're certainly not gone. High free cash flow yield, 18 times earnings, plenty of growth ahead. Gambling Jim. Hey, I'm not gambling when I bring up Berkshire Hathaway. You know, one month return is double that of the S&P 500. Maybe St. Warren hasn't lost a step after all. Maybe it's his Apple holdings. Maybe it's his Bank of America purchases. Either way, he's starting to get the respect he deserves. All righty, Steve Weiss. XPO, I added to the position, the stock is just now beginning to recover from where it was when they reported a great quarter because somebody is way too optimistic. It's breaking through resistance. This stock will follow the path of UPS and FDX. Joe Chernova. A small cap bargain, a essential and non-essential retailer, Ollie's, O-L-L-I. Good stuff. Good to see everybody. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.